everybody. It's George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School and host of the No Film School podcast. Today, my guests are also nominated for Oscars because we're doing a whole Oscar week here. The production design and costume designer for Nightmare Alley, Louis Sequeria for costumes and Tamara Deverell for production design. And as I keep saying, Nightmare Alley is a tour de force. It's the kind of movie that only comes around once in a while. Why? Because Guillermo del Toro was coming off his massive Oscar success. He had something of a blank slate or a blank check. I mean, not really, whoever has that. But he had an opportunity to take a big swing, which we talked about a lot today. And boy, did he take one and boy, did he connect. Nightmare Alley is just phenomenal. The level of attention to detail is as good as it gets. The movie is haunting, gorgeous, and fun and disturbing. <laughs> and all of that rolled into one. But regardless of all that, Tamara and Lewis have all the details on how they brought to life this vision. And it's more complicated than you would think because there are so many things about this particular story that created a challenge. For one, it's a period piece, but it's shot in color and it's on a digital medium. And yet they still achieve something so convincing and honest looking and grounded. And they tell me how they did that. It had to do a lot with weathering. It had to do with tons of research. And it's really a good indication that to make something truly come alive in an audience's mind and in front of them, you have to fixate on details that they will not be aware of at first blush. There are so many things we talk about today that are about details that the audience might miss, might not see, might not recognize, but there's a subconscious wash that takes place where you just notice on some level what the textiles and the clothing are or what the seams look like, or maybe just in the corner of a shot, something that was crafted by the art department team or the kind of wood that's being used by the construction team. These are the things that go into making truly great movies that are true art. Not to mention the fact that this movie, and Tamara says it herself, is truly an every frame a painting. We get into that more and all kinds of other fun stuff on this episode of the No Film School Podcast. Here we go. First of all, I'm really happy to have both of you here. I am a huge fan of Nightmare Alley. I have said it on this podcast to our other guests who worked on it, as well as just everywhere I can all the time. I think it was an amazing movie, the best movie of last year, my favorite. I, I just can't stop talking about how great I think it was. And there are so many things that I think are great about it, but definitely the production design, the costumes, the look of this movie. And that's why you guys are here <laughs> to talk about it. So I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to doing this. Sounds great. Thank you for having us. Yes. So my first question is, what got you guys onto this particular film? I've been working with Guillermo for a number of years. Um, I actually started with him when I was still art directing on Mimic, which was a feature he did in his first feature in Toronto for Miramax, like a thousand years ago. And then I worked on The Strain with him. I sort of got to know Miles Dale through another project that both Lewis and I worked on called Blizzard, this little Christmas family movie. And so Miles, I was in Miles' radar, so to speak. And then, um, uh, I worked on The Strain with them relentlessly for four years and with Lewis. So that was our beginning and certainly not the end. And your your history and getting involved in this film ties in similarly, Lewis? Yeah, I, I um, 
also met I met Guillermo just as a as a guest during Mimic, and I was shooting FX a series in the same studio or the adjacent studio, and I had the opportunity, uh, in fact, working with Miles Dale, the producer of uh, both Shape of Water and um, Nightmare Alley, and I met him officially as a costume designer on Mama, the feature. Uh, where he walked in on uh, a fitting with Jessica Chastain. And then, of course, you know, Tamara and I actually... Tamara, don't oh, that's work right. on Sorry. Bartlett? Not Blizzard. Not Blizzard. That was that other guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we worked, we worked together on Charlie Bartlett. That's that other guy. And then we worked together again on The Strain, again with Miles and with Garbo. And there you go. So there's a long history of collaboration. So when you guys got to Nightmare Alley, like talking, you've, you've worked with Guillermo before, so you have a partnership. So you, did you know this was something he'd been wanting to do? No, I, I, I literally was working on Star Trek and Guillermo was in the same back lot with us. And Miles and Guillermo asked me to come and visit them in their trailer. And they said, we want you to do the next project. And I said, and this is where they were shooting scary stories, which I didn't have the opportunity to work on, but love that movie. And so they said, we want you to work on the next project. And I said, well, what is it? And they were like, well, and Carol was like, well, it could be this. It could be that. It could be this other thing. I'm not really sure. The world was his oyster at the time because he just won so much for Shape of Water. So he kind of basically was talking about, in fact, when I met with him, more of the show that I just finished with him. And then at the last minute, he kind of changed, not at the last minute, but he kind of changed his mind and decided he wanted to do Nightmare Alley. So first it was this anthology series for Netflix, and then it was Nightmare Alley, which is this project that he's been thinking about for years and years and years and years with Ron Perlman talking about it, thinking about it. And then, you know, I think him, you know, meeting and getting married to Kim Morgan, the co-writer, made a big difference to the to you know actually getting down and writing the script for it based more on the book than the previous movie so i was like i'm in like who could resist doing something that's deco that's 1930s and 40s and and building a carnival from the ground up i mean it was such a tasty design project i was like from the get-go the most excited i've ever been about any project really yeah, I I ask because I'm I'm aware, and I spoke to cinema, the cinematographer and the editor on on the film, and we talked about how this had been sort of a project he'd had percolating for a while. And yes, he was in this unique position, right, when he spoke to you, I guess, where he was able to make take a big swing at kind of whatever he 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 dreamed of doing. And I feel like this is the kind of movie. One of the things that seems to make it so special is it's the kind of movie that people don't get to take that big swing with often where they get to dig so deep into a period like that and give us that deco world, that circus world that you all created. So I imagine it was a lot of fun just to go so deep on everything. Oh yeah. And, and working with Guillermo, I mean, Lewis can relate to this, you know, you really go deep. Like, I mean, we're all doing so much research and so much, and the research isn't just about like looking at historic what a carnival was like in the thirties. It's about looking at paintings and, and different fabrics and just like the run the gamut of, of opening up those worlds. Yeah. And color palette, color palette and, and texture and uh, coordinating that and, and collaborating on that by way of set dressing and furnishings and the way we're being, the way that the movie was being shot. It was um, a constant check-in 
and collaboration throughout the process. Yeah. So there's a there's so much I want to talk about, but I'm going to try to try to remember all of them and go by each thing. So let's talk about the paintings influence. There's definitely a period of art that's being referenced and whether it's trying to remember the names, but the famous painting with the sky, Christina's world, not to mention just like general noir films, but also there's a hopper influence. I feel like all over the place. Um, and, and there's so much to it. There's so much depth that I saw art that I love, but that, that comes from that period, but also reflects that depression era and all of it, all the work you guys did. It amazes me. I know there's the black and white version, but it amazes me that a color digital film could transport us to the period so well. Can you tell me a little bit about, and for all the filmmakers out there, whatever medium they have to work with, being able to create an era without necessarily, because sometimes you just re- you rely on and utilize the tool of the stock or the, the image or the color, but tell me what you did, how you did made choices with him and discussed all these influences and and took us in a time machine, essentially. You know, I mean, I dig deep into research and I love it. And it's sort of my first go-to when I start a project. And this was certainly a big one to go to because really it was the two aspects of the film, the carnival and then the the Art Deco High Society. So, I mean, I start with like, I'll I'll start with sort of style sheets and Lewis would be familiar with this. Like I'll put together my my best research well, in tandem working on color palettes and stuff and, and kind of do like a, a lookbook of sorts that's really just based on research before we even start designing stuff and and try and show Guillermo, just show him things that might trigger something. So like for Lilith's office, for example, I showed him this, this study in the Brooklyn Museum that was an all Art Deco wood study. And I, I really felt like we wanted to do something different with her office and and work towards a different Art Deco feel. So there was the Wild Wargate study in the Brooklyn Museum. There's the Eltham Palace outside of London also that I was looking at, which were all these rich wood interiors. So, you know, starting from that, starting from something concrete that exists before we before we make it our own and make it what Guillermo wants, because he is so involved in the design and he's involved right from the get-go. Um, so that's sort of my first, part of processing it and 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 likewise with the carnival we went through library of congress we went through the smithsonian there are books on banners we bought some banners we just we did a whole encyclopedia of carnival carnivals of the 30s carnival circuses peep, peep shows anything that was related also looking at movies of course nobody can look at movies like guillermo does because he's such a He's so knowledgeable, but there were a few that I was looking at in particular. I was I was looking for the Art Deco stuff. I was looking at Cedric Gibbons, who's a production designer in the 30s and 40s in Hollywood of great renown. Um, so I was looking at a lot of those movies, those old movies. Guillermo was looking at Hitchcock movies, a lot of the film noir. But he didn't want to he didn't want to hold us back with just doing film noir. That was not our sort of go-to it was you know it was the paintings it was art history it was looking at architecture and looking at modern art deco buildings that you know reflected something that we want to see like for Grindel's office I was actually looking at a modern hotel in Hong Kong the name of which escapes me for the glass walls there because I wasn't finding anything that described that which is something Guillermo asked for these glass curved glass walls and I really like to 
have a look at something that exists before I delve into that world and, and then make it up. So I found this modern building that is very much in an art deco style in Hong Kong that I was referencing. So you kind of go everywhere on that, on that journey. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything you said, there's so much there. The office is one of the most stunning sets I feel like I've seen. It, it just, it's just an office, but it's so uh, ornate and specific and beautiful. And what inspired the initial search to, what, what got you to the Brooklyn Museum? What got you to that wooded, like oh, you came across that and you're like, this is unique. No, no, honestly, I had come across that Brooklyn Museum room Many years before, every time I'd go to Brooklyn, I'd go to the museum and I'd look at that room and I salivate, to be honest. So it was in my head. And then I then <laughs> I was visiting my brother who lives about a block and a half from Brooklyn. And I went back to that room and and I had just started Nightmare Alley. I don't even know that I had totally started. I just started talking about doing it with Guillermo. And I saw that room again and it just was like, oh, this is Lilith. This is Lilith's office. This is the certainly the starting point. And, you know, it's glassed in. So there I am, this, this pressed up against the glass, like trying to get in there because you can't actually walk <laughs> into the space. Um, so I have this pathetic image of myself, you know, gleaning as much as I could. I did end up talking to the curators and asking what actual wood they used. And, you know, the fantastic thing about Nightmare Alley from, from every level, from costumes, everything is just so handcrafted, you know, and to do a film like that, where it's not, it's not, I mean, there were VFX, but it's not heavy on the VFX in terms of the design, where it's actual carpentry and painting and staining and true all of the near woods to create those Rorschach things. And, real actual painted banners that, you know, yes, we designed them on the computer, but they ended up being hand-painted. So I think that's that's the flavor of Nightmare Alley is this handcrafted sense of the world. Yeah, and that probably for Lewis, does that come a little closer into that translating all this stuff and shooting, you know, it's a digital medium and it's going to be in color, but trying to give the look of the clothes something well-worn, something Depression-era that, that we don't have around us already? Well, I think when you, when you see these old films, you, 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 you see that the textiles are, are just different from what they are now. There's a lot of yeah. finishing on, on fabrics right now. So, and there's this rippling to the seams and the, and the edges. And, and for me, that was something in order to, to feel truly authentic, I, I wanted to duplicate that and, 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 and encompass that in in especially the beginning of the the first half of the movie and so for me we we did a lot of um searching high and low both you know rome rome spain uk london uh new york um montreal we were looking for these specific kind of great fabrics and if and if they did have the finishing we we would strip the finishing and pre-wash fabrics before we even started making and, and the reality was we we did make about 90 percent of the costumes in the film um, just, you know, you're just not going to find, first of all, we had rain elements. There was no way we were going to wear, you know, rented garments that are, um, 80 years old in the rain. Um, 
And uh, number two, you're not going to find the exact thing in the right color and the right size. For the, so it, it was just easier and, and more direct. And obviously, con- you can control your palette better by just building. So I had a wonderful team of cutters and tailors that fashioned this cloth. And, and we, we built stuff at the same time running through Europe, picking clothing for the BG and antique markets for jewelry and bags and hats and, you know, accessories and, and really curating a collection that I knew I wanted to have somewhere in the film or, you know, in a place in the film. But, but it was, you know, I always say that the film is a a huge jigsaw puzzle. If you really think about the whole thing, you, you might just want to sit in the corner and cry, but if you can (laughs) parcel it out, and know that it's going to be this piece, this piece and that piece, then it's it's digestible, so to speak. Well, let me ask you both about one really specific thing in that regard. Does the watch, there's a watch that is heavily important to plot. Did that fall under a proper wardrobe area? And was that one of those things where searching for the band or the watch face itself or all of that, you know, how did that piece in particular come together? Well, that was a prop. Chris Geggy, our prop master. So maybe tomorrow you can speak to that because I, I do not have much information on, on that. Well, I, I think Chris did some research, as I recall, running a few things by Guillermo. And then there's actually an interesting article, uh, interview with Chris uh, just about watches on the movie on the, that we used in the movie. And then he found the right watch. And of course, he, he'll always run stuff by Lewis, by you, to make sure that it's going to work with the wardrobe. And for the life of me, I can't remember the make of the watch, but it wasn't a particularly stunning watch it, because it was his father's watch. So it had to, it had to be sort of shabby yeah. and yet still valuable and still evocative. And also the, the watches of the time, I know Chris struggled th- with this a lot. The actual watch faces are so, con- so much smaller than what we have today that he really tried to find something that was big that you would see. And and still be period. So I remember that was a big aspect to it. And, you know, just making sure there's two or three of them, because you cannot do a movie with just one. If anything happens mm-hmm. as, as a props master, you're doomed. <laughs> you imagine. Lewis, I want to, since that, I want to ask you about the fits because clothing is cut differently, fits and hangs differently in different times based on styles, but you've got, you know, a mo- modern body type, which is different and actors and you want, everybody wants to look good, but you also want to evoke the era. And so when you're, you know, talking about Bradley Cooper, for example, and making sure that the clothes fit, but like a guy at the beginning, certainly who's not wearing, like eventually you get to put him in clothes that he looked great in, right? Because he's in the second half of the movie wearing the suit, et cetera. But in the first part of the movie, he's looking like a regular guy in the depression, right? So what goes into that process? Well, I think when, when I was uh, working on, on creating Stan for the carnival, it really was like an every every man man and fit was I wanted to to use a fit that was not gonna enhance his body or not we wouldn't be we wouldn't notice his body at the beginning. And so yes, everything was just a little bit bigger than than fully fitted and the fabrics were were coarse and thick. And I remember we were talking about what is this jacket that Stan's gonna wear and and you know, in the day, there was lots of leather, lots of canvas, cotton, and wools. Um, and I thought, well, why don't why don't we do a, a plaid so that he stands out amongst um, the sea of, of of the patina that we had created? And so that's where 
I found uh, an original wool in a company in New York City that still had old stock. I showed Guillermo two colorways that it came in, and, and we, we went with the one that we, we decided on. And again, that fabric was pre-washed before we, we built it. And, uh, and so from there, we, we really created this kind of loose, comfortableness quality to the character. And once we get to the city, everything became uber-fitted. Of course, dealing with modern bodies, but I was fortunate enough to have original 1939 suits from from the UK with their, you know, never worn dead stock with government government stamps on them because they had they had met the the fabric code of the day, and so we were able to use those as our basis, and we we took the patterns from that from those, and so it really. You know, I, I'm not a slave to to the time, uh, to the period, but I also really love digging deep on making it feel and look. Period. So we use those as the basis. We then created his um, suits and such from from those, and um, and it really was about luxury versus everyday from one side of the film to the other. Yeah, and that uh, obviously Lilith and her outfits also represent this this separate world that we're entering, this nicer, higher class city world that he's a part of or he's briefly visiting. <laughs> and I think that that, you know, it shows that that attention to detail isn't communicated intellectually to an audience, but it's felt, it's noticed on some level. And it's what works, I believe, in taking something and making us feel like something about this really does feel, you know, like it's from this other time. I want to ask a little bit about some of the other design elements, especially the ones that have to do with uh, subtext or meaning, because there's a lot of that in this film. It's one of the things that makes it so special as we don't often get so much packed into a movie, but things that indicate that Guillermo's talked about a lot, that uh, what, what his fate is. It's not really a surprise twist. It's kind of all there in front of us from the beginning. Did you talk about things like circles, eyes watching him <laughs> when he goes into the madhouse, you know, that sort of stuff? Yeah, the circle theme was a definite big deal for us from the get-go. And then it just, for me, it was like, became an obsession. It's like, I know Guillermo wants this theme of circles. And I had my own sort of thinking about how Stan was trapped in because it started design wise, it started with the geek pit. So he's trapped in this geek pit world right. and, you know, the tents weren't exactly circles, but there's lots of circular elements to it. And then of course the fun house, um, we played that up a lot, the, the circle barrel and the circle eye room. And there were other circle elements. And then we, we brought it into the high society with the, with the um, Copacabana nightclub and the doors had circle windows. And, you know, it's funny because there is, I mean, there is a motif in, in Art Deco of, of circles. So it was an easy design element to kind of make into the period. I mean, I, I didn't feel like I was making it into the period. The actual Art Deco club that we shot in, which is the Carly Wintado, it's an existing Art Deco space that's been beautifully renovated. Restored, I should say. It actually had doors with circles in them, and we were Guillermo and I were like, "Wow, okay, there's our theme." The room itself was circular, and of course, we had do do this substantial build in there of a circled tier, like a wedding cake going up to bring the actors up to the circular ceiling that Guillermo wanted to capture. Yeah, so this this theme of circles. There's also a theme of arches, um, which is just 
you know, it's to me an extension of, of Guillermo's love of the geometry of the circle. He actually, I had Lilith initially very angular and he said, let's put arches in it. And I was like, I was, I was not into it at first. And then I put them in with our set designer and they worked. And I was like, yes, you know, that, that kind of partnership with Guillermo just collaborating visually is is astounding to get that with a director where he can suggest something and I can fight back a bit and go, oh gosh, you are right. And it usually is. So arches, circles, the alley, again, with we were constantly looking for long alleyways or, or stretching the sets really long. So we had the long hallway in Grindles. We had the long drive up to Grindles. We had the long alleyway in the train between the train cars, which even though it was a location, where we placed the train cars, it was like trying to achieve that, moving train cars around for two days. Right. And then when we return, uh, or when he and Willem Dafoe's character drop the geek off, was sort of a visual precursor to those train car alleys, right? There was sort of an intentional thing going on there. It was a mirror of that later. I wanted to ask also, both of you, that sequence you mentioned, the funhouse and the eyes and the circles, it sort of falls in a point in the story where he's, you know, crossing a threshold. He's beginning his journey to his fate, really quite exaggeratedly because he confronts this guy. He looked, I don't know if you guys talked about this at all. He looked kind of like Indiana Jones to me during that, the way he was dressed with the fedora. And I think he's wearing, a is he wearing a leather jacket? Like he's, and he's got the flashlight and he's searching around. But also that the whole sequence has this, it seems so intentional. It did, was there a lot of conversation around that section where he goes to try to help him? You know the one I'm talking about, and the geek hits him with the rock, and there's the eyes in there. From a costume point of view, no, there was there was no correlation from. I mean, the reality is most men wore fedora, fedoras, and 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 uh, so uh, and Willem, you know, Willem had the uh, leather jacket, having been somewhat affluent um, in the past. So from the wardrobe standpoint, it, it might tip its hat to it just visually because right. of the period. Um, but there was no direct influence. No direct reference to Indiana Jones. No, but I thought maybe direct reference to or just attention to the, this is such a significant moment for this character. And and go the funhouse being somehow symbolic visually of some ch- change or shift or journey he's taking. Certainly some in terms of the symbolism of the funhouse, I mean, that was the whole play between, you know, good and evil and are you a sinner? And we kept playing that up. And, and the first version of the funhouse was supposed to be going through heaven and then into hell, then into purgatory and then into hell. And we just at some point dropped mm. the heaven, A, because it wasn't that interesting to have a bunch of cutesy angels and stuff and just went for, this is the house of sin and you're going in here and it's a, you know, a dangerous place to go in a carnival and it's creepy and weird. And then compound that by the fact that it's actually not, it's shut down and then it's sort of semi-activated. So some of the parts are moving, but it's dark and it's raining inside because there's holes in the tent. And, you know, the whole journey, you know, there was so much in there. And I have to admit, when I first saw the film, I was a little bit, wow, we did all this work, but we're only seeing this much. And then I realized well, it's it's this much, and it's so rich, and everybody's reacting to it. In you know, like going, wow, that yeah, it was worth doing every little bit of it because we had all kinds of other things moving and stuff. 
but it's Dan's version. So he stops in front of one of those wonky mirrors, which we, those were the one thing we actually found those mirrors and we added, are yes. you a sinner or whatever it is on it? And we did up all the, the seven deadly sins as you walk in. I think we only see a few and it was all very carefully calculated with Guillermo. Which ones do you want to see? Like, <laughs> I mean, cause we, they were interchangeable, the sins. So I can't remember which ones we actually saw. And then, uh, you know, doing the giant, um, devil head opening and the big skull at the end i mean that's the playfulness i think of guillermo sure. as well as just you know wanting to create this visually rich place that also is creepy and mysterious all at the same time um, and it, it, you know funny until we actually got in there finished the set and got in there to shoot i tried to give guillermo many options for where the geek actually could hide and so we had these movable kind of really fake little mountains you know made out of burlap like like they would have made them in the day just burlap with sticks sticks and burlap that he could move around and kind of create mm-hmm. a cove to find the geek and with dan our amazing cinematographer so there was lots of you know so much planning and then a freshness to the whole scene because guillermo could actually develop it with the actors you know he worked it through workshopped it through with them before we shot it it's an interesting way to work yeah, and everything, all the detail packed in there again, just like what Lewis is talking about, the seams and the custom making or creating the costumes. I think it's all there. It all washes over you and you're aware as I was that there's so much there, that it means something, that the filmmakers on every level intended something. I wanted to ask about the descent at the end, sort of, you know, not super spoilery, but, you know, the last, I don't know want to say act, but the last little percentage of the film when he's, we, we jump forward and he's come upon hard times, as he says. He's become something you would see also in, in images from the time period, but the way he's dressed, the men he's around the fire with, the look of that is such a, like we're sinking beneath the earthenness of the circus now. We're, or the ten in one, we're, we're now in like the absolute like basin of, of the depression. What kind of, because movies of the 1930s don't often show that. They kind of didn't show, they were showing a different world than the one people were inhabiting, but there's probably photographs and other, what, what, what kind of sources do you draw from and in, in, in creating that look? Well, I, I guess for me, it was really, again, going back to pictorial research. And as we know, in that time, People were looking for escapism in film, and, and that really wasn't something that you yeah. were going to be seeing much of. Um, but we had done an incredible amount of research. We had five, three, three-inch binders full of uh, photo reference from from different aspects of of our various worlds, and and there was a whole section of down and outs, as I would say, or or homeless, or mm-hmm. and and it really again was about the texture and the wear, and the and for for Bradley's character, we talked about you know is he still wearing what he wore that night or partially or and if so how many how much time had gone by and i remember that there was you know great discussion because it you know everything affects everything else from costume to makeup to hair you know how much time has gone by and, and thus what are the wounds and 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 such so we had come together on on that specific time and then it was Again, taking those costumes that were built and and aging them to to support the story, and uh, with incredible breakdown team that I had, we we went. You know, usually with Guillermo, I, I like to to check in, and so I go what I believe to be fifty percent or seventy percent, and go and show, 
and present. And um, Guillermo uh, undoubtedly always says, take it more, which is better than saying, take it away. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. that's the way it goes with, with aging. Um, you can't go back. <laughs> well, you, you can, but it's a sad story because you're washing everything out. And, and undoubtedly, you know, there was a lot of layering of staining and, and aging and painting and airbrushing to get us to that place. And, and then it was, you know, trying it on with Bradley and, and getting his feedback. And almost everything went through that kind of a process of, of getting it to the right level for believability and right because nothing they wear is like off the rack so to speak so like everything has to be somewhat aged or fitted right or yeah made into yeah he's had on exactly for and 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 again i throughout the whole film especially carnival the carnival world i'd be right on set with with my waxes and i would be putting in final touches of additional aging according to how it was being shot and the light levels and and so it it really you know, figuratively and in real real life, you're painting as you're filming, which I love to do because that's where everything yeah. gets solidified. But again, for the for the city, things were not aged, but they were they were all built and then slightly aged because you can't have something coming out of your workroom and and put it on somebody. It still needs a little bit of a little bit of uh, history. Yeah, was the I want to ask. Do you remember about either of you the time frame you settled on for between that that ellipsis at the end and then saying okay it's been this long and and you 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 asked some questions but but I'm very curious to know if there are answers like how long was it the same clothes or did you say like maybe he grabbed another jacket at some point or something like that Yeah well he literally grabbed a coat um and he did change his boots and and the shirt was the original shirt and I believe the pants we we settled on the same same pants, but you know, again, they looked very different, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of work to, to, uh, create that completely lived in unwashed look for, for the character. And tomorrow, do you have answers just about getting to that world? And then even the return to the 10 in one circus world, very uh, end, but his just taking him and taking that little uh, place that, that you created that is familiar as a depression era location but not one from that many movies at that time. I think the beginning of My Man Godfrey shows it, (laughs) sort of, but it's very brief and rare that we get to see that world from the The, films of the time. The Grapes of Wrath was actually one of our references, but even that was fairly cleaned up. Guillermo did point out a couple of sequences in that movie, just in terms of general vibe. And then we were looking at, you know, Dorothea Lange and... What's Walker Evans and Ben Sean, all those FSA, Farm Administration photographers that were working around the Depression. Uh, Even though we sort of had moved beyond the Depression, we still really wanted to be evocative of the Depression era with the hobo camp. And, you know, when we're building like the hobo camp where he wakes up and he joins the group around the table, you know, we we built that actually adjacent to our carnival, just worked out that way that we had a great spot with an existing old silo and barn that kind of created this cove. And, you know, we used old wood, like we, you know, I have an amazing construction team that will go out and find old barn board and the set dresser to go out and find old canvas and everything again, like, just like Lewis, we just aged everything. Like there was nothing that we didn't pressure wash and beat down and age. I mean, every banner, every, every aspect of, the, certainly for the hobo camp, for example, was so it has such a patina, you know, like just across the board. 
so yeah, for that, the hobo camp, and then we created sort of a third, the last carnival where, where Bradley Cooper, Stan, the character goes through at the very end. And we built that Airstream trailer. And that was all, again, with a circle motif in the background. And that was all, um, Guillermo very much wanted to have a, a, a specific color flavor for that. So it was all heavily nicotine aged, but also there was an, a complete absence of green in that entire i believe it's green <laughs> I, have to, I have to watch the film again uh, in that entire carnival as soon as you take out a, one of the major color themes yeah it was blue you know you you instantly create this new version of there was some of the same tents were used but it just it felt like such a different place and then you know we adjusted the lighting and color time to, in, in this sort of very um, warm nicotine depression era feel for the color version. Yes, it's so cool to hear that because it's not just where you are in the story in the sense of impending doom. That carnival feels worse. <laughs> There's something happening emotionally that translates through the visuals that lets you know that it, that it is a worser version or time or a time. There's no hope. The way there's a little hope in that first carnival in places or pockets, and it could be in the color. I don't, I don't know the answer, but it, in something that both of you did in the in the wardrobe, there's something about that second carnival that feels like a place of no hope. Quite intentionally, I think. Also, with that with that sequence was it felt it was Guillermo had mentioned windswept and de desert like, even though it wasn't a desert, but it was really mm -hmm. devoid of of color, and everything was really quite faded out. And that was the only time where we actually saw some, you know, carnival freaks in the movie, oh, even though they were, they were, you know, quite to the side and, and whatnot. But, but, uh, it was a definitely a different kind of carnival from our, our first carnival that had those warm kind of burgundies and some yellows and there was some greens. And so it, that's what I took from, from that that um, last carnival was just the the devoid of of color and lots of windswept dusty we added lots of dust to everything on on that yeah we actually had interesting yeah you mentioned also cedric gibbons a long time ago in this interview but i was thinking about isn't he didn't he do wizard of oz am yes. i wrong yes or was he he might have i don't know if he was but Okay. So there's a lot, I feel like there was a lot of not just the blues and the teals, the city being having, uh, when we get to Buffalo and inside their hotel room, Emerald City vibes, <laughs> but like colors of life, but also the carnival stuff, like the, what the wizard himself, or the wizard as he looks in the black and white Kansas world, his little cart reminds me a little bit of the final I mean, there's, there feels like there's so many things between Wizard of Oz and this movie that I could go on, but it, was that a discussion point at all? No, not at all. I mean, I, I certainly, that, this is the first time I've actually <laughs> so thought completely that. Wrong. And, you know, it's funny because I was doing this Santa Barbara Film Festival and they said, what is the first film you saw that really, like, made your, your that blew your mind? And I didn't say Wizard of, the, Wizard of Oz, but I thought about it after. I thought, yeah, that actually blew my mind and actually has a hand. That movie had a hand in, in making me do what I do now. I mean, it was so phenomenal. So I think it's not fair to say it's so embedded in all our psyches, including probably Guillermo's psyche, that, yeah, there's a bit of Wizard sure. of Oz in there. I mean, it's also just 
it's also just the flavor of the period and the tones of the period. And we were, yes. we were the carnival, certainly making it a more saturated world. I probably much more saturated than I initially thought we were going to go. We were going to do, but you know, Guillermo said, just go for it. Like make the banners colorful. As long as we age them, which we did heavily make the tents colorful colorful you know he had a big part in like the reds the red of the geek pit that's you know very particular red that he wanted that we tested and tested mm-hmm. it was like it's a punch in the punch in the face red for sure i'm wondering if either of you had did <laughs> well yeah i mean that it jumped out at me but so many movies did maybe just i saw things because i loved it so much but did you two have any anxiety not maybe that's not the word but trepidation about this this color the the depth or the saturation of the colors given that this is period and typically people would say you want to desaturate everything practically to black and white to make it feel old but it worked and it was at the dust i i mean it's amazing to create a period like that that we know as black and white with such deep colors for me i think it was trying to again going back to the texture and uh, Guillermo wanted the nicotine stained throughout the you know the whole world of of carnival and and so it really was trying to find those fabrics that spoke to that period with little glimpses of of hope here and there and pattern here and there but the the overall was was really in essence we were we were doing a black and white but in color and the same thing with the city where i looked at fabrics that reflected light a lot of those scenes were very low light and i i really felt i needed um you know fabrics that were going to give back in those low lights and and especially when we hit a, a highlight of of a light hitting across a face or a body so that's why there were satins and, and textured wools and so it was quite prevalent in my psyche the fabrics and what the fabrics were going to give to the story in both aspects. And, and, you know, we had, I had a, a wall of small tags and each tag represented a, a bolt of fabric. And we had hundreds of bolts of fabric there at the ready and, you know, working with Guillermo and working through the different, the different characters and their, and their uh, fabric stories. It was quite wonderful to, to lay this, this kind of, I would say tapestry of of uh fabrics um because in essence we did have you know 18 characters all at the carnival all the time even if we didn't see them they each were every carnival scene basically had 18 characters in it and so it became quite a you know a challenge to to coordinate that in tamara's world throughout the throughout that aspect of the the movie yeah and i mean in terms of the the color and the saturation initially it was it was scary for me. Like there was so many saturated colors that I, I was concerned because it isn't my go-to. And yet again, with all the aging that we did, it, it, it certainly helped, but it was a process. And, and there's not a lot of color, you know, we're looking at a lot of color photographs. There's not a lot of color photographs of those carnival eras. And I was trying to be true to the era as well, but we, we did find a few and they were very punchy. And we did actually buy a couple of, real banners, not from the thirties, but from the forties, but, but by that, you know, classic Fred Johnson, Picasso of banner paint, paint, they got this guy that painted so many of the banners in the carnivals of the era. So we actually could see the actual color and quality. 
Because I, I think, you know, we were trying to be true to, I mean, I was trying to be true to the period and saturate where we wanted it to really stand out, like the geek pit uh, in particular. But those, you know, those carnival reds and blues, those punchy primary colors, those existed. We just, we're just not used to seeing them. And I still haven't seen the black and white version of our movie. So I know Guillermo contemplated from the get-go shooting the whole film in black and white, in the actual black and white. And he, it was something he wanted to do. And then I don't know if it was he changed his mind in conversation with Dan and with me and with the, the, the studio. But uh, this black and white version that he's done, I feel like, which I haven't seen, but I feel like our film still, you know, stands up. and in the way that films of the time that were shot in black and white that we've seen in black and white, they, they did them in color. I mean, things shift and they're not, maybe the, you wouldn't expect, oh, that's actually green, but you know, they were shot in color. What's so fascinating as a challenge to both of you, to an art department and something like this is not really having a ton of reference for the color of the period. It's a strange problem that we don't think about <laughs> when, we, when we think about creating it in color. It's part of why it would be easier to say, let's do a black and white, because that's the references we have. But you, you found some in the example of the banners and, and pieced stuff together. And, and you had the paintings. You had the art of the time. So there are places you could dig. And, and it, for me, that was the thing as an audience member that jumped at me was it was like, oh, it looks like all these paintings that represent that time, which, which I felt was such a beautiful and unique way of approaching this. Yeah. And I mean, very much for me, you know, I went to art school for a thousand years when I was younger and I really was looking at creating a film that looked like a series of paintings that every frame would feel like a painting. And you know, when Guillermo started bringing up those references of paintings and I was bringing other paintings, you know, it really became a kind of pact of with Dan Lauston and with Lewis that, yeah, we're making, we're making paintings, we're making art, we're making something where each frame can have a, a standalone composition and quality and color tonality and all of that, you know. And it's interesting, our, our, our DP actually comes from a still photography background than Lauschton. So he has that focus on composition of a still photographer, which I think is essential to get really good frames. I mean, it's, it's a different eye. He's not just thinking about the moving camera, but he's thinking about the still moments uh, equally as well. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time because I want to end on that because I truly do think that, yes, the movie is, you guys accomplished it. It feels like it is just a series of, beautiful paintings and it's a it's a great film i really enjoyed it and i'm very glad to have talked to both of you and good luck with, with awards and everything thank you thank you very much thank you tamara and lewis for coming on the podcast i really appreciated it of course i'm a huge fan of the film Everybody knows that at this point, and everyone should be a fan of this film. It's incredible. I wish more people saw it. I hope it gets awards. And I'm excited for people to listen to our recap of our Oscar guests from this year on the No Film School podcast. That'll be coming out on Friday. We will have excerpts from all the episodes we've done with guests on the crafts and the making of these nominated movies, and it should be a lot of fun to listen to, even for me. So be sure to check that out. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us on Instagram and YouTube and 
all the other places and like, rate, and subscribe and leave a comment and let us know what you think. Be sure to email us any questions you have at editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening.